Good morning, church. People of God, good morning. Uh, I see them every week, and we worship together every week, but every time we're together, I still get disoriented. Man. And they're great singers and great musicians, but they're even better people. It's truly an honor to serve with them. And it's a greater honor to serve Jesus and to proclaim the gospel to you this morning. Uh, Ryan's away, so he let little brother come in and and handle the text, and I don't take that lightly at all. It's great to be with you this morning. But before we get started, rules of engagement. Ready? If you feel it, if you're feeling the ghost, if, you, if you're like, man, Jesus is prickling my heart, just say amen. amen. So, so, so give a verbal amen if you're feeling it. Now, if you get real convicted, this is what my grandma does. Just give, just give this face right here. So if you're starting to feel a little convicted, just give them the. (laughs) If talking is not your thing and you're not about the verbal, amen, just give a wave. Just give God a wave. Amen. And last but not least, uh, in my tradition, I'm I'm a black preacher and I can't help it. So if it starts going too long, just give us the wrap it up, Pastor. (laughs) Just give us the wrap it up. Just, Just give us the wrap it up. But it is great. It's great to be with you this morning, and it's an honor, and we're starting a series this summer called Saturate, and our hope and our prayer here, as as Ryan leads our staff, is for the gospel to saturate our world and to saturate our culture, and specifically here in Stark County, here in North Canton, in the places that we live, work, and play. We want to see Jesus glorified, magnified in those places, and he's magnified in those places as he's magnified in our heart. We have a dream that every man, woman, and child in Stark County would have a daily encounter with Jesus Christ because they have daily encounters with us. So throughout this summer, we're going to talk about what it looks like for us to saturate the world for the sake and for the glory of Jesus Christ. The next two weeks, you're going to hear a sermon series that kind of set it up. Then Ryan's going to really lay it out and set it up. So today, our sermon is titled, We Are Stuck. We are stuck. But before we get going and we get started, I would be remiss not to talk about my Jesus. Church, Jesus is alive. Jesus is not only alive in third world countries. Jesus is not only alive when you're in youth group. Jesus is not only alive when we are gathered together. But Jesus Christ is alive because he lives within us. What made the disciples, those apostles in the New Testament different is they didn't only believe that Jesus Christ died for them, but they believed that Jesus Christ lived in them. And Jesus today is alive. He's alive and well. And I know that he's alive and well because Jesus saved me. Years ago, I remember not sinking deep in sin. I remember being dead in my sins and my trespasses. And I remember the day that the grace of God entered my heart and changed me. And since that day, He's been conforming me more and more into his image. Jesus Christ is alive, church. And that's the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus is alive, and that's what makes us different from the rest of the people in the world. Because while the world cowers in fear at how the culture is changing, we stand strong because we believe that Jesus Christ is alive. We believe that he hung on the cross and suffered for us, but we believe that on the third day he got up. And that's good to know. That's good to know. The gospel. And a great way to look at the gospel is to look at it like a play. 
to look at it like a musical, to look at it as if it's art. And you see, the gospel has four movements or four scenes. And the four movements or the four scenes of the gospel are first creation. Scene one, the pre-existent God creates the whole universe, right? He's going to create these habitats. He's going to create light and darkness. He's going to create the sky, the dry land, and the sea. Habitats. Then that great God is going to create inhabitants to dwell within those habitats. For the light and darkness, he's going to create the sun, the stars, and the moon to govern. The sky, the birds to govern. The dry land, he's going to create animals. And then for the sea, he's going to create the fish to govern. Then at the pinnacle of this creation, on day six, he creates man. And he creates man in his own image, in his own likeness, to rule over that creation as he rules over all things, to mirror and image his greatness and his glory on this earth. Act one, creation. Scene two. A few chapters later, you're going to find the fall. You're going to find Adam giving God, giving Adam and Eve a command to not eat from the tree of good and evil. You're going to find Adam and Eve say, hey, God, thanks for creating me, but no thanks on telling me how to live my life. I'm going to follow my own way. Like a band called Fleetwood Mac said, they went their own way, right? (laughs) Got any Stevie Nicks fans? Praise them. (laughs) They went their own way. And they decide to turn from the goodness of God. And at that point, we're going to find sin enter the scene. And after sin, you're going to find brokenness. Brokenness. Immediately after their disobedience, What happens? You're going to find shame. They hide from God. You're going to find fear. They cover themselves. And then when God asks them what happened, they're going to start playing a blame game. It's that woman you gave me. It's that serpent. You find blame. And in the very next chapter, you find Cain and Abel, brothers, who were called to love each other, kill. Kill each other. Cain's going to kill Abel. And from there in the Old Testament, you see brokenness and you see fallenness on the scene. Even in scenes where you find God moving and you find heroes of the faith, you're always going to find this brokenness as a common theme. David, the great king of Israel. Saul killed thousands. David killed ten thousands. But what do you find David do? You find that sin and brokenness. But Act 3, I like Act 3. I like scene three because scene three is redemption. Scene three is Jesus. Scene three is when we're in that broken and pitiful condition, destitute and maimed, God's seen us. And God left the throne of heaven in the person of Jesus Christ. And he came. He lived a perfect life among us. He died the gruesome and brutal and horrific death that we deserve on the cross. But that's not it. Three days later, he got up with all power. He rose from the dead, and he taught his disciples for 40 days, and he told them to wait, that he was going to send the Holy Spirit, and then he sends the Holy Spirit, and we see the inception of the church, and my friends, that moves us to scene four. Scene four is the church. Scene four is God restoring what was broken, and scene four is cool because there's a promise in scene four that Jesus is going to return one day and he's going to wipe all the tears from our eyes. There will be no more pain, no more crying, no more widows, no more orphans, no more racism, no more disease. But Jesus will make all things right in scene four. But you see, scene four is interesting because there's a tension that lives deeply within scene four. And the tension is Jesus has redeemed all things. 
He sent his Holy Spirit to live in us and be the vehicle of the church, but we're still awaiting his return. You see, as Christians in the world, we are stuck in attention of scene four. We are stuck. And I don't know if you feel that tension, but I feel that tension every time I turn on the news. Every time I get a phone call that says one of my friends has died of a heroin overdose. Every time I I leave the country and I see an orphanage, I feel that tension. And today in our sermon, we're going to answer two questions. And question one is, in that tension of scene four, since we are stuck, what is our calling as citizens of the kingdom of God in act four? What are we called to do? How are we called to live? And question two is, what does that look like? What does that look like? So, to answer any questions in faith and practice, we look to the scriptures because the scriptures are true, and that's where we find our answers. So, if you would, please, with me, we're going to look at Jeremiah chapter 29. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. still see some scrolling and some flipping. If you don't have it, we have it up here. It's okay. I'm going to read. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exile and to the priests, the prophets, and all of the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is after King Jeconiah, the queen mother, and the eunuchs and the officials of Judah and Jerusalem and the craftsmen and the middle workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elias, the son of Saphan, and Jeremiah of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, the king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. It said, thus says the Lord of hosts. This is God speaking. Let's listen. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I've sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters a marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. This is God's word and it's true. You may be seated. So what we've got going on is in 587 B.C., the southern kingdom of Israel is going to be captured by the world power at that time called Babylon. And what happened was Babylon had come into Jerusalem. And what they did was they took all the prophets, they took all the priests, they took all the young men, they took all the middle workers, they took anyone who could be of use in their kingdom and in their culture. And what they left in Jerusalem was women, children, the maimed, the diseased, and the depressed. If you want to find out about what happened there, you can read the book of Lamentations. But what God is doing is he's speaking through his prophet Jeremiah, and what he's saying is, hey, I want you to write a letter, and during this letter, I want you to write to them 
what I would have them to do while they're in exile. You see, the children of Israel are stuck. They're stuck. And you see, they're God's children, so they know the promises that they have in God. They've read the Pentateuch. They've read the Old Testament. They know that there's a Messiah who's coming in the likeness of Moses, and they believe in the promises of God. So they have this promise, but what's in front of them is God saying, I've sent you into exile, and you're going to exist there. You're going to stay there. You see, in Jeremiah chapter 29, the people of Israel are in a similar situation as us. You see, they're stuck. But God gives them instructions on what it means to function as stuck individuals. Now, what's great about this is the whole thing is straightforward. What God is telling them is engage their culture. What he's saying is, hey, you're going to be there, so what I want you to do is I want you to take sons and daughters. I want you to to marry them off. I want you to multiply there. I want you to become great there. I want you to plant gardens and produce. I want you to involve yourself in the culture because as you seek the welfare of that city, you're going to find your own welfare. Now, the call there is very straightforward and it's very plain. The call there is to engage the culture that they're in. But I don't know about you, and I'll be honest, like I'm a part of a wonderful team of people here who are planting a church, and we think of ourselves as missionaries. So sometimes we get kind of puffed up and we're like, we're missionaries. We're about engaging this culture. But the reality of the fact is, when I hear that, that scares me. Engage the culture. Because I read the newspaper probably more than I should, and I watch the news. And the idea of engaging the culture is a very scary thing. An author and theologian named Amy Sherman is going to say that that fear that we as 21st century Christians have of engaging the culture is going to manifest in three different ways. One, it's going to manifest in fortification. Fortification. Now, Amy Sherman is going to say that fortification is the way of the baby boomer, but it's the way of me sometimes. Because you see, fortification says that I'm going to hide from the culture that's around me. What fortification does is it develops this bunker mentality, and it says that we as Christians are going to hide in this bunker while the tornado of culture is happening. And inside this bunker, I've got my acoustic guitar. Inside of this bunker, I've got my Bible study. Inside of this bunker, I'm okay because I'm with my Christian friends. And we're going to live inside of this bunker while the rest of the world around us goes to hell. This is made manifest, right? Most times in the way that we live our lives. We go to work. We clock in. Check. We work all day. We work hard, but you know those people around us, they don't really love Jesus. They don't know how I live. So I'm just going to work and I'm going to mind my business for these eight hours. And after these eight hours are over, I'm going to check out, get in my car. I'm going to drive home. I'm going to hit that garage door opener. I'm going to open the door to my castle. I'm going to drive in. And then in my castle, I can finally breathe. I'm finally okay inside my castle. And for some of us, even inside our homes, we fortify ourselves. I know I do sometimes. Sometimes. 
Sometimes I'm like, man, I've just had enough of what's going on. I've had enough of today. I've had enough of the world. So I just need to get away. That fear manifests in fortification. It also manifests itself in domination. Domination. My Facebook crusaders. Domination. I'm going to post this status, and after I post this status, I'm ready to argue for at least 100 comments. I like to call the domination view the way of Peter. Because if you look in the Gospels, the way of Peter is, hey, Jesus, you've come here. And what the Messiah means is you're going to make Israel the world power again. Yeah, I know we were in exile. Yeah, I know we were in exodus. But Jesus, you, the Messiah, have come to make us a great nation. And you're going to be a great military leader. And we're going to dominate. We're going to dominate. And a lot of us have those mentalities. And we're ready to argue with our friends. And we're ready to be on Facebook arguing because we have a perspective. And that perspective and that position has to win. And many times we forget that on the other side of those perspectives and positions are people, are our neighbors whose God has called us to love. She's going to say that this manifests in a third way, and this is the way of Millennials, so millennials, please hear me in the room. Accommodation. We accommodate the culture that's around us in a pursuit to reach people because the pendulum is swung and we don't want to fortify ourselves. In that pursuit, we seek culture, but in seeking culture, we lose our Christian identity and who God's made us to be. Many times we rocket ship towards culture with good intentions of reaching it, but the gospel itself jettisons and falls away and gets lost. Church of Jesus Christ in North Canton, God is not calling us to fortify ourselves. He's not calling us to hide. What does he say in Matthew chapter 5 about a light hiding under a bushel? It's no good. God is calling us to be the light of the world and the spaces that we live, work, and play. Church of Jesus Christ, God is not calling us to domination. Vengeance is mine, thus saith the Lord. What does Billy Graham say? He said, it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict, but it's our job to love. But it's our job to love. Church of Jesus Christ, millennials, please hear me. God is not calling us into accommodation. God is calling us to be proclaimers of the gospel in word and in deed in life. What he's calling us to do is faithfully engage the culture around us. During that deportation in Israel, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and many others are going to be deported. And you're going to read about that in the book of Daniel. And what do they do during this deportation? What do they do in a culture that is estranged to them? What happens? You find story after story after story of faithful engagement. And what does faithful engagement look like? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego took part in the culture. They learned the language. They became Babylonian citizens. But in the midst of doing that, they never lost the identity of being Israelites. And we as the church of Jesus Christ are New Testament Israelites in a similar predicament. And what God is calling us to is faithful engagement in those same ways. King Nebuchadnezzar loved Daniel because Daniel could interpret dreams and Daniel could do great things. But when the rubber meant the road, 
when the will of Nebuchadnezzar and the will of God crossed, the will of God always was supreme. No, I will not eat the king's meat. I'm going to pray three times a day, Nebuchadnezzar, and no matter what you do, even if you throw me in the lion's den, it's okay. It's okay because I believe in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I believe that the rescue is coming. So even though I'm stuck, I'm going to faithfully engage culture. So what does it look like? Question two. For us to faithfully engage culture. As 21st century Christians, Babylon's not conquering us. What does it look like for me, a person who lives in North Canton, have a regular job? What does it look like for me to faithfully engage culture? I believe to answer that, we look to the scriptures. We look to the scriptures. So if you would, please, with me, turn to John chapter 1. We're going to read from John chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5, but I'm going to pick up at verse 14, and I'm going to read through 17, if that's all right with you this morning. I'll read. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all men. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. We'll pick up in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory as the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's word, and it's true. I believe as we look at this text, we find a blueprint from Jesus of what faithful cultural engagement should look like. In verses 1 through 5, we find the the spiritual account of Jesus coming to earth. You're going to find the physical account in the synoptic gospel, stories of Mary and Joseph and how it physically happened. But in the book of John, you're going to find how it spiritually happened. In those first five verses, what you're going to find is the attributes of Jesus, the culture of Jesus, the culture of the triune God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. You're going to find his triune nature. He's three in one. You're going to find the fact that he was there during creation because he was there before creation, because he existed as a part of that triune God. And this is my favorite part. It's going to say, in him was light, and that light was the life of all men. There was a culture that dwelled within Jesus as he manifested in flesh. In church this morning, I ask you, What is the culture that lives inside of you? Because if we're going to faithfully engage culture, the culture of heaven has to first faithfully engage our hearts. Because what's inside of us will come out of us. When we're squeezed, if we are Christians, if we spend time with Jesus, if our devotional life is serious, 
That culture is what's going to come out. What is the culture of your heart? What is it? I'm a football coach now. Crazy, right? I'm a freshman football coach at Garfield High School, and we feel like God has swung this door open for our missional community as a way to really reach into the community and as a way to really meet families and meet students and meet teachers and be light. But the truth of the matter is, if the culture of my heart is not the culture of heaven, if it's not Jesus, nobody's going to be reached. I'm just going to be a football coach. And I'm just going to be a neighbor in my community. And I'm just going to make some cool friends. But no eternal impact will happen. The culture of our hearts has to be the culture of Jesus. Citizens, my church family, we're going to plant a church. It's going to be cool. It's going to be awesome. We've got cool graphics and really cool music. And we hope people come and we hope people are changed. But the reality of the fact is, if the culture of our hearts is not the culture of heaven, then we'll just be neighbors. We're just folks who are moving. And that goes for all of us. That goes for all of us. Good intentions are simply good intentions. But kingdom change and missions happens when kingdom change and mission happens in our hearts. That's what happens. Point two, verse 14, I love it. And the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. It dwelt among us. Eugene Peterson, in his translation of the Bible called The Message, he's going to say the word became flesh and it moved into the neighborhood. Jesus is present. He's present. You see, he left the eternal throne of heaven. As Philippians 2 says, he counted equality with God a thing not to be grasped, but he humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, taking the form of a human. He was present. Church, we've got to be present in the places we live, we work, and we play. It's so easy for us. Here's the fortification deal again. It's so easy for us to go to our jobs and to clock in and clock out. It's so easy for us to live in our neighborhoods and our communities and not know any of our neighbors. It's so easy for us to go to the same Starbucks, and I see some of you there. So I know that you guys go to that same Starbucks. I could probably name some of your drinks. To go to the same Starbucks and not know any of the baristas' names. God is calling us to be present because in those places and spaces, there are people who need to see the light of Jesus Christ. He's calling us to be present. Jesus, in John chapter 4, the Spirit is going is to tell him, hey, i got to go through Samaria. And the disciples get mad and they're like, hey, uh, we're Jews, we don't, we don't do that. We don't fools with those Samaritans. For us who are Cleveland sports fans, that's like us going through Pittsburgh. We don't do that. <laughs> Amen. <laughs> right? We don't do that. But the Spirit moves Jesus to walk through Samaria. And as Jesus is walking through Samaria, Jesus walks to a well. And a well was a common place. People had to go to wells all the time because it was the only place you could get water. So Jesus goes to the well, and Jesus sees a woman. Now, Men didn't have to talk to women. Jesus was a rabbi. He was a teacher. So he surely didn't have to talk to that woman at the well. But Jesus was present in that moment. And Jesus talked to her. And through that faithful interaction of engagement, she would come to know Jesus Christ. 
and his goodness and his wonder and his worth. And then she would go back to Samaria and tell people about it. And that's because Jesus was present. And he's calling us to be present in the places that we live, work, and play. He's not calling us to just live next to people, but he's calling us to be neighbors. He's not just calling us to be employees, but he's calling us to be missionaries in the places that we work. He's not calling us to just take our kids to soccer practice, but he's calling us to be missionaries and to be his light in those places and in those spaces. And lastly, verse 17. I love verse 17. The law came through Moses. The grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And what he's calling us to be is ambassadors of grace and truth. But both grace and truth. Truth. The truth is, you talk about the things that you love. That's the truth. Right? We get married to this beautiful woman in a few weeks. And if you talk to me, you're going to hear about the fact that I love her and she's awesome and we're getting married. And I can't wait. We got a house now, moving the rest of my stuff in this week. You're going to hear about that happiness because I love her, right? If you hang out with me for a little bit longer, you're going to hear about my Cleveland Cavaliers <laughs> and the fact that even though the world is against them, they will rise against the West, amen? <laughs> I've got one amen. They will rise, indeed. Prayerfully, indeed. The kid from Akron, indeed. But you're going to hear about those things. When was the last time you talked about the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of these four walls? When was the last time you talked about the gospel of Jesus Christ outside of your small group? When was the last time you talked about the goodness of Jesus Christ outside of your missional community, outside a safe bunker of Christians? The things we love, we talk about. And the truth is, that truth that he's calling us to, is to proclaim the gospel, not only in demonstration through the way that we live, but to actually proclaim the gospel, to proclaim it. We're ambassadors of that. And lastly, he's called us to be people of grace. He's called us to be people of grace. I wasn't a Christian growing up. My mom loved and loves Jesus very deeply. She's in church right this second, teaching Sunday school as she has my whole entire life. She loves Jesus, but I didn't. I didn't. And when I was in high school, there's a youth group. You guys, listen. And the youth group was pretty mean. Throughout the whole school, the youth group was known as those mean people. Those mean people. And the reality of the fact is, in America, if you ask people what they think about Jesus, they'll probably say, we like the principles and the maxims of Jesus that are found in the Bible. If you do them, you can probably become a better person. People aren't against Jesus, but if you ask them what they think about Christians, what they're going to say is Christians are these hard, mean people. Christians are bigots. And Christians want to dominate. They're going to probably say, I argue with Christians on Facebook. people of God, in the gospel, Jesus says, he who is forgiven of much loves much. We are called to be people of grace. We are called to be people of grace because Jesus has been so gracious to us. He 
He's been so gracious. You see, the death that we deserve for the sin that we commit, Jesus took upon himself and he died the most gruesome death ever recorded in human history. And the first words of Jesus on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. At our jobs, we should be known as the most gracious and nicest people around because Jesus has been gracious and nice to us. In our neighborhoods, we shouldn't be known as the neighbor who says, get that ball off my yard. We shouldn't be known as the neighbor who says, I'm building a fence. We should be known as the neighbor who's saying, come in, because Jesus has invited us into his family and we're now made positionally righteous through his blood. As Christians, we should be the most gracious people. We should be the most gracious people. In closing, the band's going to come up, and we're going to sing a song, and the song is called Spirit Breakout, right? You've probably never heard it. It may be a little foreign to you, but my team and I are planting a church in the city of Akron. And our prayer for the city of Akron is that in the places we live, work, and play, that the spirit would break out. We know that it's not because of our innovative ideas. It's not because of our cool logos and graphics. It's not because of their ability to play music. But the only way we're going to see gospel saturation happen in the ways that we live, work, and play is by God's spirit dwelling within us and changing our hearts and that pouring out in the places that we live, work, and play. So as we sing this, I challenge you to press in. I challenge you to sing this as a prayer because we as Citizens Akron are an extension of the North Canton Chapel. We are one movement. And our prayer as a movement is that the spirit would break out. Please pray with me. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we need you. Uh, we need you. God, we look around as, as stuck people and we see the, the pain and the devastation that is happening. And God, we ask that your spirit would break out. God, we ask that you would continue to press into our hearts, that we would be a people who would faithfully engage the culture around us for your glory, for your wonder, and for your work. God, we want to see gospel saturation happen and in Stark County, in Summit County, in Northeast Ohio, and to the ends of the world. God, I pray, us to, I pray that you would continue to show us what that means. We pray these things in the strong name of Jesus, that name that is above all other names. Amen.